Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. There are still many questions surrounding the leaked Supreme Court opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade. For now, Chief Justice Roberts has directed the Supreme Court Marshal to investigate the source of that leak. Meanwhile, as we wait for the final opinion from the court, many state officials across the country are working to further limit reproductive rights. And overturning Roe might have implications for other constitutional rights, including, among others, the right to contraception and the right to interracial and same-sex marriage. Preet Bharara and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the insider community. Can we talk a little bit about one of the assumptions that Alito makes in his draft opinion that, that I'm interested in your take on? Because he talks about pregnant people no longer needing access to abortion because there have been so many social advances that have benefited unmarried women. And I hear a little bit of a an echo here oh, yeah. from the Shelby County case, the voting decision, where Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right, she said far more eloquently than I can say, but she essentially said getting rid of the Voting Rights Act now is like throwing out your umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm because you're not wet. A- and I hear Alito saying that here. Women predominantly no longer need these protections because they've advanced so much in society. And it's sort of like throwing out the umbrella all over again. Well, what's interesting about it is it's not a constitutional argument, right? It's it's an unnecessary argument. That's right. If Alito buys his initial premise, right? It's it's a policy argument. And it's interesting, and maybe it's all of, of a piece with what we've been talking about with respect to the political riskiness of this. There seems to be a need to try to justify the overruling of Roe and the constitutional analysis by trying to be persuasive with respect to policy and, you know, a a ploy in in many regards at humaneness. I know I I saw some of the Republican talking points that were circulated about how members of Congress on the right should talk about the Dobbs case and the draft opinion and to emphasize compassion towards children and towards mothers and all of this because they understand how explosive and unpopular this decision is. And of course, we know all of those arguments are wrong, right? Because these same folks who talk about compassion towards kids and the importance of life aren't willing to expand medical care or education or support for women in the workforce. So that's just all balderdash. Look, I I see these charts, and I wish I had it in front of me, that show the ranking of countries in the world ranked by how many weeks of paid maternity leave women are required to get after having a child. And in many countries, it's, you know, it's dozens of weeks, scores of weeks. We don't have that in this country. And so to describe a litany of reasons why, you know, it's not such a, a, you know, a burden to have a child in this country, particularly if you're not of, of means and you don't have a lot of wealth, is silly when you look at just that one stat and how America ranks. And I'll I'll share a personal anecdote just briefly here that I think 
illustrates that point. Our second kid, um, a very much wanted kid, was born with a congenital heart defect that turned out to be a, a syndrome. And he had open heart surgery when he was four days old and again when he was six months old. And it was 18 months before I went back to work full time. I was really fortunate to have a woman as the acting U.S. attorney at the time who really made it possible for me to stick around, which mattered a lot because we desperately needed our medical insurance, which was my medical insurance. And so two lawyers, you know, faced with enormous medical bills, but we had good insurance. It it was really close to devastating. One of the ways we survived it was that I got a forbearance on my law school loans, which meant that the interest kept wrapping around for those 18 months where I was predominantly not getting paid. And we sort of survived that as people with a lot of resources and a lot of help that we could throw at the problem. I just imagine people in that situation who are more vulnerable And I read Justice Alito's words knowing that reality, and I just think that they're shameful when he suggests that people are, you know, for instance, protected from pregnancy discrimination or they have, quote, guaranteed medical leave, which I didn't even have in the federal government. This notion that costs are covered by insurance, it's it's just such um, an indication that either he lives in a bubble where he doesn't know the truth or he just doesn't care. I think it's rhetoric that is designed to dress up something that they want and that they know is unpopular. And it's empty. Look, we should talk about some other consequences that Alito maybe is turning a blind eye to, knowingly or unknowingly. So it's not just about the banning of abortion. We are now seeing movements in lots of places to not just ban it, make it unlawful, but to criminalize it with an effort to send both women who are having abortions and abortion providers be criminally responsible and be sent to prison. And then further on that spectrum, one implication that I'm curious to know your view is, you know, once you overturn a case and once you support a position with certain kinds of arguments, policy or constitutional, that has consequences for other arguments that may or may not succeed, but they can certainly be drafted and put forward. And one of those is the idea of fetal personhood. So to the extent that the argument is moving in the direction, both on the Supreme Court and in various states, that life begins at conception, that can mean that a fetus at the earliest possible stage has 14th Amendment protections. And that leads to a lot of interesting results, doesn't it? It does. I live in a state that has a personhood law ready to go. In fact, Alabama actually voted for Amendment 2, an amendment to our rather lengthy constitution that's a personhood amendment. And this marries up with this concept that you're talking about, about criminalizing abortion. There's always been a little bit of a distaste until very recently for criminalizing the woman herself who seeks the abortion. And I've talked with a lot of folks about why that is lately, and it seems to me that the argument has more to do with optics than anything else. This notion that you would prosecute a woman who had been pregnant, it seemed to be sufficient in the view of people who wanted to disincentivize abortion to criminalize, for instance, the doctor who provided it. But now there's this push to actually prosecute the woman herself. And 
In a state like Alabama, which has a zombie law that goes back into effect, making abortion illegal if Roe is reversed, or in these states that have trigger laws ready to go into effect if Roe is reversed, and if you marry those up with some form of a personhood bill, then the logical conclusion in a state that permits criminal penalties for abortion is that abortion is now murder. If a fetus is a person— then terminating the pregnancy is a murder, and it can be prosecuted. And can is a really important word there. Prosecutors have a lot of discretion. Investigators have a lot of discretion. But it's not difficult to anticipate. In fact, we saw it just happen in Texas, where the law explicitly right now prohibits prosecution of a woman, that a woman was arrested and held in jail during an investigation into whether or not she had terminated her pregnancy. And this has a lot of implications for women who miscarry as well as for women who obtain abortions. It puts us into this sort of hellish dystopian nightmare where a lot of what happens depends upon the views of people in power, of sheriffs or police chiefs in you know smaller parts of the country and prosecutors as well. So I, I sort of painted out the hellscape there. I, I may have gone a little bit further than where you wanted to start. I prompted you to do it, and you and you you did it with flying colors. I drove right there. I mean, w- one thing that we keep saying, just to make it abundantly clear what we're talking about and what the risk is, that some people are sanguine because they live in New York or they live in Connecticut or they live in California, and the Supreme Court will say in Dobbs, we're just returning this issue to the states. And if you happen to be fortunate enough and have a certain view about reproductive rights and you live in a blue state, typically, that right's not going to be taken away. And that's the reason why they think it's more palatable than it actually is. The point that you and I are making is there can come a time, I'm not saying this is likely and I'm not saying it's imminent, but it's on the table. There can come a time when courts will find that if life begins at conception, then it doesn't matter if you live in California or you live in New York because the constitution itself will protect that fetus at the earliest possible stage. And That could mean, again, not saying it's imminent, not saying it's necessarily likely, but that could mean that abortion is unlawful and maybe criminal everywhere in the country, right? Everybody needs to think about that in November when they make a decision about whether or not to vote and who to vote for. I mean, I think you're right in saying that it's not imminent, but it is the logical conclusion of where this is headed. And lest you think people won't do it, I I was looking at some old speeches that Mitch McConnell had given earlier this week, and in, I forget the year, 2013, 2014, he spoke at the National Right to Life Conference, and he committed that if he became the leader of the majority party in the Senate, that he would push for a national ban on abortion. So it's not like this notion isn't being discussed legislatively and also as a possibility in the courts. It's not like this is something that's really far out there. The people who are in favor of overruling Roe, it is not their agenda to leave it to the states. I have come to believe that's just, you know, a rhetorical flourish that helps make something palatable because it's important for them to say, this is not taking the right of abortion away. It's just leaving that decision to the democratic process in various states. But then you see on the eve of Roe being overruled, how the goalposts have shifted in favor of something far broader than allowing the states to determine themselves, right? We're talking about a federal ban in Congress 
and we're talking about 14th Amendment due process arguments on behalf of fetuses, that's where it's going. Like, what, There's no reason to suppose that an energized anti-abortion population is going to stop at the mere overruling of Roe, right? I think that's right. And let me let me be clear about something here. As I've had this conversation with younger people, especially younger women, I've heard a certain sense of this is all inevitable. There's nothing that we can do. We give up. And I think that's absolutely a self-defeating way to look at it. Knowing that this is a possibility, I think it's critical that people raise their voices, that they get into the public square, that they vote, because these rights can be taken away. They can uh, evaporate over time. And so it's critical for folks who want to retain these rights to literally put their bodies in the way of these decisions by being out and protesting and voting. So listeners will notice that we've been talking for a while and we haven't yet talked about the consequences of the leak itself. In other words, the investigation that Chief Justice John Roberts has called for with respect to the leak of the draft opinion. And I will say again what I've said before, the fact of the leak is not the story. It's secondary to all these other things that we've been talking about, but it is a story. And I disagree with those folks, even who are on my side of the fence, who say they don't care about the leak. The leak is important. It means something. It means something for the comedy of the court. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who've chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. <laughs>